St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, said that one of his desires, his goals, is that Christians would be drawn together in unity, and that they would therefore be protected from those that carry around every wind of doctrine and want to establish disunity. Well, what was the means that God gave us to build this unity on, to ensure that it would not only be established in the early church, but last throughout the ages? Did he give us a book, or was there some other source? We'll talk about that today in Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and uh, we're coming to you from the offices of the Coming Home Network International in Central Ohio, but we're really coming to you over the great generosity of EWTN Radio. It's a great pleasure to be involved with EWTN for so many years. It's a a great apostolate, and I would encourage you to go to EWTN.com to find out all the things that the EWTN provides in terms of carrying the message of Christ and His Church around the world. Deep in Scripture, we focus on the importance of being deep in Scripture, truly deep in Scripture, the danger, as some Scriptures say, which we may look up later, is that some people have the Bible in their hands, but they may uh, turn it away from what it means it's meant to say, misconstrue it, you know, put their own ideas into it, uh, interpret it according to their own uh, preferences, Sometimes, you know, we're, we're blind to our consciences. We're blind to the ways we've been formed. And so we pick up the Bible and we think it says one thing, but maybe we're just making it say what we want it to say. Maybe we're grabbing a verse and, and, and it's just confirming what we want it to confirm in our lives. Are we really listening to God? And is it possible that this, all these different ideas, in fact, draw us away from what is true and therefore draw us away from what Paul intended in this passage in Ephesians. This is the passage we're going to look at today. Uh, I've invited back for two weeks in a row, if he could stand it, a guest uh, that we had last week on Deep in Scripture, Gary Mashuda. Uh, it's great to have him here. Uh, he came down uh, to uh, join us from Michigan, and as long as he was here, we figured we'd, we had so much to talk about in one hour, we wanted to stretch it out into at least two. And let me tell you about Gary. He's a, an author, a speaker, a teacher on Catholic apologetics and evangelization. His most recent books include Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, The Untold Story of the Lost Books of the Protestant Bible. And then his second book, which is more in line with what we're going to discuss today, is called How to Wolfproof Your Kids, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Keeping Your Kids Catholic. He is a regular speaker at Catholic groups and organizations and conferences around the United States and Canada. Let me remind you that this radio program is connected to a website, deepinscripture.com, where if you go to the website, you can see the text we're looking at today, all the archived programs, all the information about the Coming Home Network International, and you can watch Gary and I sitting here in the studio talking to each other as we discuss the Word of God. Now, the text that Gary chose for this second portion of our discussion, as I mentioned, connects us with the book that he has recently written, and uh, it's available through the EWTN catalog or the Coming Home Network International catalog. His book is called How to Wolfproof Your Kids, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Keeping Your Kids Catholic. At the core of this idea is how can we know that what we're passing on to our children is true? especially when they live in the context of a world with so many conflicting voices. And Paul was referring to that in this text today, which let me read. We'll take a break and let Gary join us. But let's look at this text as the jumping off point for asking the question, how today in the 21st century can we be certain that what we believe and what we're teaching and what we're passing on, what we're drawing other people to come and hear, how can we be certain that that's true? Paul wrote, beginning with verse 11, chapter 4, And as gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, joined today by Gary Mashuda. Uh, Gary, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. I, I want to apologize because just before I invited you on, I told you we we're going to talk a little bit about your book. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I preempted that with an advertisement for my book. But I uh, <laughs> let me begin, before we get into the Scripture, uh, this second book you wrote, which is so different than the first one. The first one was on the Deuterocanonical books right. and why the Catholic Bible is bigger, and that's what we talked about in the last program. And then now here comes this book, How to Wolfproof Your Kids, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Keeping Your Kids Catholic. What uh, it, it may seem obvious why you might write it, but talk about why did you feel it's a big effort to write a book and why did you see the need to do this? Yeah, and there's practically no footnotes in the new book, so <laughs> <laughs> unlike the other one. Yes. Well, uh, you know, after doing uh, apologetics for a number of years, I used to run a nonprofit ministry in apologetics. And uh, over the years, I would get called in what I call my kamikaze missions. I'm sure you've had them, too, (laughs) where uh, a parent or a grandparent or even sometimes children would call me in for their parents to come in and talk some sense into, you know, my loved one because they've suddenly not only left the church but have become rabidly anti-Catholic. And when you go into these kamikaze missions, you're really coming in at the very tail end of a long process in which they were recruited out of the church. And over the years, all the heartbreaking stories that I've heard from parents that have lost their loved ones through uh, what I call wolves, you know, because they're sheep stealing, basically. Uh, I decided to maybe, instead of trying to come in at the end of things, give some advice based on my past experience about what maybe parents can do beforehand to make it more difficult for their children to be sheep stolen. So I came up with wolf proofing. Well, it, it, I found it, the first time I heard that you titled your book this, I may have told you this, I, I loved it and it was funny because over the years I give a talk called Keeping Your Kids Catholic and, and uh, those of you that are interested, if you can go to deepinscripture.com, it's somewhere on there, you can listen to it. Uh-huh. Um, but one of the things that I admit when I begin my talk is that I am a former wolf yeah. speaking right. to sheep about how, how to keep their lambs out of the jaws of other wolves. Mm-hmm. Now, when I said that, I was speaking as a former Protestant minister. But those of you that are listening that aren't Catholics and you wonder why, why would you want to keep your kids Catholic, you've got to understand something. In your world, whether you're Presbyterian, Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopalian, whatever it is, you know that your churches are made up of people from a great variety of other traditions. Mm -hmm. 
when I was a Presbyterian pastor, I had three to four brand uh, new members classes every year where I'd bring in 20 to 40 new members to my Presbyterian church every, three or four times a year. Almost every one of those new members wasn't saved from nothing. Mm-hmm. They weren't atheists and now had found Jesus in my church. A few, most of them were former Methodists, former Baptists, former Lutherans, Episcopalians. 30% of my congregations were ex-Catholics. Protestantism today is not a, you know, a, a, a long stream of parallel spaghettis where each church is made up of former whatever it was after generation after generation. Yeah. All Protestant churches are full of ex-everybody else. Right, right. They know it to be true. And so to a certain extent, I would expect a Methodist, if he really believed his faith to be true, to be saying, how do I keep my kids Methodist? Right. A Lutheran would want to do the same. Why wouldn't we want to do that? If a person is a Methodist, doesn't believe that the Methodist church is the true church, then why are you in it? Sure. Why are you bringing up your kids in that church? You might say, ah, it's the best angle that I think I've found. But is that enough for their soul to make certain that their soul and that they'll is saved, that they'll spend eternity with God, body and soul? Now, all this is introduction, Gary. This passage we chose, I think, deals with this issue because what we're saying is that in the earliest days of the church, they had this problem. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, how do you maintain unity and knowledge? And if you look at Ephesians, Paul doesn't say, well, we'll give you a manual that each of you can use to reconstruct, you know, Christianity as you believe it says. And there's no evidence that when those early Christian teenagers were catechized in the year 60, Mm -hmm. that right after their catechism, they were given a little Bible that therefore said, now you have this. Now live it, right. as if that's all they needed. Right. Yeah. Absolutely, because uh, what you have in the, the earliest church is, of course, apostolic teaching, with uh, Acts two forty two. Right. That's the proof text for the early church, and yeah. quintessential <laughs> is that they occupied themselves daily with the teaching of the apostles, the breaking of the bread, and and the prayers. Actually. It's interesting in Greek the prayers actually has the article. It may be liturgical prayers. Yeah. yeah. The prayers. The, the prayers. Psalms. Yeah. Like, right. Uh but but when we look at Ephesians, you don't see that that certainly the apostles did give the scriptures, but they also gave uh, uh ministries through which we can not only know what the scriptures are, but also how to interpret it and, and how to uh, understand them in a way that we're not just projecting our own beliefs onto the pages, but we're trying to understand the pages as they were meant to be understood. The context of Ephesians 4, to understand what are the group of people to whom Paul is speaking, you go back to the first chapter, verse 13, when Paul says, In him you also, who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Sealed with the promise Holy Spirit in the context of the, of the scriptures, the early church we know is baptism. That's the only thing that makes sense that that was. Mm-hmm. But the point was they had heard, it had been passed on to them. The apostolic tradition was passed on. That's the people to whom Paul's speaking. Right. The desire back in chapter 4 is that they, in verse 13, that they would attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's their goal. That's our goal. We want our children to have that. That's why we do. Right. However, we live in a world with a bazillion other voices that try to pull our children into other things that they believe is equally true. Right. I mean, you have some examples in your book. Maybe talk about how different our world is today from the world that Paul was writing about. Oh, absolutely. And uh, even for the first centuries of the church, because if you asked anybody to point you to a Catholic church or to, to a Christian church, they would point you to the historic Catholic church. They wouldn't point you to some small heretical sect. 
And uh, that persisted not only that, through, through the Great East-West Schism onward, that there was this core unity, a group of believers that possessed the truth and handed on its fullness of truth. Uh, in fact, you can see in Scripture also that what determines somebody uh, who's a heretic and, and who's not is whether or not they're within our group, like First yeah. John, Second John, Third John. You know, they came from us, but they weren't of our number. Uh, so it's ma- being within the community that we maintain this truth. And it's interesting that when you look in the, all the variety of New Testament documents, sometimes the determination as to whether a person was still in our group, sometimes it's doctrinal. Mm-hmm. You see that in First John, right? right? If you believe in that Christ came in the flesh, you know, or, or he didn't. I mean, that was one of the, at that point, that was the issue sure. in that little community. Other times it's praxis. Right whether they're doing the disciplines of the church. Right. Other times it's whether they're living a holy life or not. Like right. in 1 Corinthians when the guy's kicked out of the church because sure. he's living an immoral lifestyle. Yeah. And you know, there's always an element of self-deception, especially with people who are outside the church coming in. For example, when you were a pastor, you weren't thinking, well, I'm going to put my own spin on Scripture and I'm going to you know, uh, show people that something that's not completely true. Rather, there's a self-deception that, yeah, God has called me to do this, so therefore I'm helping people by uh, pulling them out of their church, whatever it might be, and yeah. bring them into a fuller sense. So the question is, how do you know? How do you know whether uh, the the group you're bringing in is the true group, is the group that Christ wished? In fact, with you saying that, if we go back to verse 11 in Ephesians 4, I mean, this was the verse that... I, like so many Protestant ministers, based our, our, our convictions that we were called to do this ministry, because it says that his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and it goes on for all those things that we are attaining for, for this unity, for that, that I believe that's what I was called to do, right. and, and I'm a pastor. There, that's my job. I see listed there in verse 11, and I understood that, and my job is to equip the saints, the, in other words, the, the laity in the church, to make sure that this message is continued to be passed sure. on. And, and you're apostle, because apostle means to send, you right. know, so you're, God sent you to do the God's work. But the question is, you know, where is that rooted in? How do you, uh, how do you know whether or not you are a particular minister of God's word. How do you know what is God's words? And I was going to bring up Second Peter. Fine. Yeah. Because yep. uh, Second Peter has a very interesting section in ver- chapter one, uh, starting in verse twelve. And basically, what Peter is doing is he's talk. He's he's recounting what happened on Mount of Transfiguration, and he says to uh, the people he's writing to that we ourselves are eyewitnesses to what has transpired here. And then he says, you do well to follow us as a lamp shining in darkness. Now, it's interesting is, you know, transfiguration is in scripture, Mm -hmm. but he says, you do well to follow us because we're eyewitnesses. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word that's altogether reliable. And then if you continue to keep reading through Second Peter, and I know I'll be here another week if we keep going through Second <laughs> Peter, but if you skip to the end, you know, yep. skip to, cut to the chase, uh, Paul talks, uh, or excuse me, Peter talks about Paul, and he says, Consider the patience of our Lord at salvation as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, according to which, uh, uh, excuse me, wisdom given to him, also wrote to you speaking of these things as he does in his letters. Now here he comments on Paul's letters. He says, in them, there are some things that are hard to understand that the the ignorant and unstable distort to their own destruction. Now unfortunately, you know, this is the New American Bible translation, but other translations have ignorant, uh, uneducated, it's almost like... RSV, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. It's almost like ignorant, like you didn't go to school, you didn't go to seminary, you can't read in the original uh, writings, but the Greek word there is amethys, which means the undiscipled. So the people who distort Paul's letters 
are number one the unstable that is they keep switching back and forth to different doctors and you'll see that with mm. what i call wolves they'll believe one thing and then they'll a couple years later they'll deny the same doctrine they'll use one jargon for one thing next week is something else you could do something one week you know back and forth it's unstable but most importantly it's undiscipled so ask yourself okay who is it this who are we to be disciples of so that we won't distort scripture to our own destruction and the context is what i just said that prophetic word the apostolic word that's altogether reliable if we just throw into this mix galatians chapter one where here we have what many believe is one of the earliest letters of the new testament one of the earliest that in fact most scholars i think put this before the gospels before the gospels are penned down one of paul's earliest letters he says in verse 6 i am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of christ and turning to a different gospel not that there is another gospel but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of christ Mm -hmm. immediately in the earliest days those that have not been fully discipled or just maybe think they know better than the apostles, of course. Right. You know, that old fisherman, what's he know about <laughs> teaching theology? So they decide, I know it better. I understand. I got a better slant on it. Right. So immediately they come up with a new slant of the gospel. And it's not that they're given it a different name. They're just calling it the gospel. Right. Paul said there is not another gospel. There's only one gospel. Right. Today we have a bazillion gospels out there. Right, Gary? Right. I mean, Absolutely. I mean, again, give an example of what you're, in your wolf-stealing book, the kinds of new churches. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, in uh, some of the most, uh, the, one of the most unusual cases was actually a Nostradamus cult. And it was actually one of the saddest cases I recounted in my book where I got a phone call from a, a wife who said, my husband has been become involved with this Nostradamus cult. I'm really worried about him. It turns out that this cult was teaching, this is back in the uh, early 90s, that uh, there was going to be a catastrophic flood and that if you weren't you know, on the compound of this particular cult, somewhere <laughs> in the upper northwest America, you'd be wiped out by the flood. So she said, can you come talk to him? So I, I went and I, I said, sure, I'll do some research. But before I could even do the research, she called me up and she said, I was going through his desk and I found a one-way ticket to this place. So this guy was going to mm-hmm. withdraw the, the money from the family and take off into this cult because they believed that there was going to be a catastrophic flood that was predicted by Nostradamus. And, I mean, that's, sure, it's one of the more unusual ones. Yeah. But, there, like, there's literally thousands and thousands of and, different you know, that false one, gospels. That one maybe, in the normal uh, uh, passage of time uh, of a Catholic or, let's say, a good non-Catholic Christian walked in to that group, at least after one Sunday or two, they might say, you know, there's something a bit f- funny with what's going being taught here. They might see that and be able to run as fast as they could in the other direction. Sure. But on the other hand, we are surrounded uh, all over the place by uh, close, you know, but no cigar-type sure. churches. You Absolutely. know what I mean? They're real close. And so it becomes more difficult and difficult, especially if, let's just say, if Catholics particularly are not as catechized Absolutely. as well, or they're not taught what they're to expect out of Mass, and so they go somewhere else where they can get more right. out of worship. So when we come back from the break, I want you to talk about how can you identify the real thing. Okay. Look at that in a bit. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Gary Mashuda, and you're hearing us on EWTN your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ 
and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by... Gary Mashuda, and we're looking today at a variety of scriptures, but we're particularly looking at scriptures that um, that address the topic, and, and that is how do you make sure that you're uh, following the true gospel, that you're a part of the authentic church, the body united together authentically so that you're growing in holiness towards the fullness that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4 as opposed to be drawn away into, as he warns about, all these other opinions and false near but not true doctrines. And what we've been pointing out is that this is not a new issue. This goes all the way back. And another verse that made me think of that, Gary, is when uh, John in his first letter was warning about it's the last hour because there are already these false teachers around, antichrist, people who are against Jesus. And he says there isn't just one, there's a bunch of them, right? Sure. And he says, how do you know? And and he says, um, which one is false? And he says, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, we need to put that in context because that isn't the only criteria we now have for all of eternity to determine a true or false. That was the issue he was dealing with in the context of that particular church, isn't that? that Absolutely, yeah. And uh, one thing that we mentioned earlier was uh, that often these groups, you know, the wolves, have substantial truth to give. And that's what's so alluring, I think, for... Uh, Catholics to to be sheepstone because they're the, what they say is true. The problem is they don't give the, the entire picture, the entire truth. And uh, if you don't have the the whole truth and nothing but the truth, then so help you God, because yeah. uh, ultimately uh, logic will tear down the foundations of whatever you try to build if it isn't built upon the fullness of truth. Like we talked about in Second Peter, where. It has to be stable. It can't be unstable. You can't move from one doctrine to another. Just like these people probably started out with an orthodox understanding, and then they started denying, uh, and then the other ones to be a disciple to to follow the apostolic church and follow how they teach. My assumption is, Gary, that in your book, I mean, why is it that those that have the fullness leave right yeah well you know most people aren't like commander data on star trek where <laughs> everything is just logical and you know unfortunately yeah i think it was newman that said that uh, you know there's more t- than arguments that persuade the human heart that there's also we're social beings and many times uh other thing good things can be used to draw us away from the best things uh, so many, uh, what I call wolves or sheep stealers, will use sh- social nets. They'll meet people where they were, provide needs for them, and then just slowly start. You know, whenever they bring up something Catholic, they'll look like, "Boy, you got bad breath." You know, these <laughs> negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement when they say something that's in accord with their own belief system. And before you know it, you know they're viewing Christianity through this little square. You know that only this little square is true. Everything out there is darkness. And uh, that's, you know, back to the fullness of the faith. That we're, as it says in Ephesians, that we're growing into the fullness of him, the fullness of the head of the body of the Christ. We have in the history of the early church uh, a man by the name of Tertullian whose personal example should sit as a warning right. to anyone that presumes that you've arrived and you're never in danger of temptation. Why is Tertullian a model for that? 
Well, yeah. In some ways, I think he ran into the front door so fast he ran out the back door. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, Tertullian, uh, as you know, he was a very, very sharp Latin uh, jurist, lawyer. And, uh, but once he was inside the church, he kind of got uh, persuaded into uh, Montanist heresy. Uh, that the, they believe that that there is continuing revelation. And stuff. But what strikes me is, you know, Tertullian seemed to have his head screwed on pretty good when yeah. he first came in. But, like, these wolves started changing his worldview until finally he believed that New Jerusalem was going to descend from heaven onto Phrygia. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. talk about wor- changing your worldview. But I, I, Some uh, of the early letters of Tertullian come down to this day as just wonderful witnesses yeah. of the authenticity and the witness of the church of, of, of that period, the first in Latin. Yeah. He's one of the first writers in Latin, great theologians. But then, essentially, he got caught up in enthusiasm. Yeah, exactly. And uh, to me, Tertullian, I don't know uh, his personal life, but he does remind me of, of why some Catholics who have the truth, but maybe they don't experience the enthusiasm, sure. get drawn away by the enthusiasts down the street. Yeah. Who seem to have it all together? They have to, all the fireworks, you yeah. know. The the people in Phrygia they were getting prophecies from heaven, you know, and uh, and you have this old church that goes back to the apostles that just keeps teaching the same thing. Of course, what it teaches is so deep you could spend a lifetime and never reach the depths of the Catholic Church teaching. And like you said, sometimes uh, in a way yeah. it's kind of like the fireworks, the enthusiasm that. They chase after that, thinking, "Well, I'm going to be a real Christian and and follow this group." Well, I would say uh, today you can't, um, ex- you know, surf the television or radio without finding some enthusiast mm-hmm. teacher teaching some slant on Scripture. Of course, today, um, especially with our internet and and cable channels, satellite channels. Now we're getting not just Christian enthusiasts that are taking the gospel off in any number of imaginable directions. We're finding other religions that are almost like Christianity, using Christian ideas. Sure. uh, You know, very enticing, giving the impression that they've got life all figured out. And if you follow things the way they put it together, with the right, they give you the right look and the right smile and the yeah. right words. Yeah, and the, the, you know that really squares with the biblical picture that's drawn of wolves in sheep clothing. You know that doesn't. I, I'm from Detroit area. We don't have very many wolves in sheep. But <laughs> since we're out here, I'm sure you could testify that wolves don't walk around in sheep clothing. That's something that they would have to <laughs> put on for themselves. And the idea is, these people look just like sheep. They, you know, they they walk like sheep. They talk like sheep. They have sheep fur. Yep. They must be sheep. When actually, like it says, it's ravenous wolves. Um, and and people are attracted to truth. You know, uh, uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas says that we never sin for sin's sake. We only sin for an apparent good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that you're reaching out for something that appears to be good when actually it isn't. And the funny thing is some wolves that don on sheep clothing actually look more like sheep than real sheep, you know, <laughs> because the they've found some really good clothing. You know, they're nice, clean-cut people with wonderful families. They look families successful. They look like the faith is working for them. They use Christian terminology, and and if you're looking for something like that, they do appear on your doorstep, and before you know it, you you start thinking like them. And like I said, everything gets narrowed down to that little keyhole where you have to view scripture and history, everything, through this tiny little box. You know, there's a sense in which the reason we have the New Testament documents is specifically because the writers of the documents were so concerned about these wolves and sweet sheep's clothing coming down on their variety groups of Christians, whether it was at Corinth or Thessalonica or in Colossae or Ephesus. Or John, probably writing to the churches that are referenced in, in Revelations, in his letters. Or, but he, they couldn't get there. Right, yeah. Because they were in prison. John's in prison. Paul's in prison. They can't get there. So normally they would look them face in the face and, and draw them to the fullness. But they couldn't get there. So they would, they would write these letters specifically to uh, make sure that they're holding on 
to the tradition that they received from the beginning. Right. And they'll often allude to things that we don't know in Scripture. You know, they, they'll say, as I've mentioned before, keep doing what I said and yeah. do this also. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and sometimes you read it and you're like, boy, Paul, it would be nice if you kind of filled us in on, uh, you know, what exactly did you teach them about? But of course, yeah. we have that because we have the church. Yeah, the way you just phrased that question was the way I would have phrased it in the old days when I thought all that I had that was trustworthy was Scripture. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of, of recognizing that sacred tradition uh, is the preservation of that deposit of faith that was handed on from Christ right. to the apostles. Yeah, and it, and Scripture often I mean, it always talks about the unity of faith, like in Ephesians where it says that we grow in the unity and knowledge of Christ Jesus, that there's one faith, that there's one standard, like you said earlier in Galatians, that uh, they don't accept the false gospel because the gospel you received is the one true gospel. Uh, nowhere do you see a kind of pluriformity where, you know, that you'll achieve perfect knowledge of the Word of God, and you know, and you can share it with others as they achieve different knowledges or something. But there is a unity of faith, uh, a oneness of the faith that is the orthodox stance, and uh, it, it never talks about like a pluriformity of different faiths and churches. In fact, when Jesus came. Uh, the people were shocked at his preaching because he preached with authority and not like the scribes who basically gave their own opinion as to what they thought the scriptures said. When Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy, in that he's referring to problems in the church that Timothy has to deal with as a as young bishop, bishop. And you see in the words of Paul exactly what we're talking about because he first says in chapter 1, beginning with 13, this is Paul, who can't get to Timothy. He would normally sit down with him, we find, over a glass of wine. That's what uh, Paul told him to, to drink for his stomach. Stomach, yeah. yeah that's sure. an excuse. But, uh, but Paul, can't getting there, tells him, reminds him, verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words which you heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So there, as Paul warning Timothy to hold and protect and preserve and pass on, right? Yeah. Then the, about six verses later, Paul says, And what you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul to Timothy to the select man. We see the apostolic succession as the protection to make sure that the gospel we receive from Christ continues now 2,000 years later. Right. Right. What do wolves in sheep's clothing do with those verses? Yeah, that's a good question. They they don't comment on it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You you certainly don't see something like... uh, Paul certainly didn't tell Timothy, remember those books, those scrolls that I gave you? Well, study those scrolls, and then you'll come up with a sound pattern of teaching. And then teach others to, to read the interpret the scrolls for themselves so that everybody will interpret the same way. The odd thing is uh, the more you focus strictly on Scripture, apart from sacred tradition, the more disunity you have. Yeah. I mean, even the, the historical grammatical method has yet to come up with a single doctrine which is uniformly accepted by all. Well, there's that old story about how you cook a frog, right? You put them in a pot and slowly raise the temperature. Right. And what that analogy, of course, refers to is that often we don't see change happening because it happens so slowly. And I'm not sure you address this in your in your book, Gary, but I don't even think most contemporary Christians recognize how strange the rise of all these mega independent churches how strange that is in terms of the history of christianity Hmm. because that's a brand new phenomenon right right you know and yeah it's like you said it's like the frog where it's slowly but surely your worldview you know everybody has a worldview a single unified view which we understand and make sense of the world slowly begins to change till eventually white becomes black, black becomes white. 
Uh, in my own experience, I've met lots of people who have used to be very, uh, you know, happy, holy Catholics who become rapidly anti-Catholic, but they, they claim that nothing really changed in their lives. They're still the same people. They still feel the same way. It's like, how, how can you do that? You're tearing apart your family. You know, you come to all these different beliefs. How? And, and like you said, it's that incremental slow change during the recruitment process that suddenly a sheep gets transformed into a wolf. Yeah. And I'm not sure of it, how true this is. I want to think more about this later. But I think when I was in seminary uh, back in the late 70s, Protestant seminary, evangelical seminary, interde- uh, a non-denominational evangelical seminary, that I almost look back and wonder if the way that I was being taught to preach, if that was the seeds of what's led to this immense independence we have today in churches. Hmm. Because when I was going to seminary, still Methodists, if you're born Methodist, they're probably still Methodists. And, and, but these idea of these mega churches that have no connection to any other Christian group in the world, each church has 10, 15, 20,000 members, all based around the teaching of a small group of guys. What, the way I was taught in seminary to prepare for preaching was on Monday, after I chose the text I would preach on the next Sunday, I would go to the original language. I would essentially do all the grammatical research, exegesis, come up with my own translation, and then, secondly, determine the meaning of that passage for myself before I went to any other commentators Hmm. to check whether I was too far off base. Hmm. And as long as I wasn't, that's what I preached. So in other words, the whole emphasis was not what Calvin said or what the Lutherans believed or what I believed as a Calvinist or whatever. Right. It's what, what did I individually believe the Holy Spirit was teaching me. And I believe that was one of the seeds that has led to all this independence where every individual pastor thinks he is the center of what is true. Right. right. Carrying on the tradition, and he sees no contradiction from what he is doing, independent of any other Christian, from what Paul was saying in these passages. Yeah, absolutely. Gary, when we come back from a break, I want you to give the definitive silver bullet answers on how to keep, help parents keep their kids safely in the fold. Okay. All right? You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Gary Mashuda, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 8th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, how firm is your foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Gary Mashuda today, and we're, we're dealing with this question of how do we make sure our kids stay in the fold? And Gary, I found a verse, fun verse to jump off on this discussion because Paul, in that same letter to Timothy in chapter 3, though, 2 Timothy 3, warns about the last days and all the different descriptions of what's going to be like in the last days. It basically says it's going to be nasty. I mean, it's all these long descriptions. And he says that there will be people who will hold the form of religion but deny the power of it. Mm. So they're gonna, it's going to look like they've got it, but it's not, it doesn't have the sacramental 
graces. All right? But then verse 5, verse 6, excuse me. And then what he says at the end of verse 5, avoid such people. Verse 6, for among them are those who make their way into households and capture weak women burdened with sin and swayed by various impulses who will listen to anybody and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Hmm. In other words, people will come in with very convincing arguments and pull them away. Right. Not just children, but adults, men and women. Absolutely. So what do we do? Well, there's a number of things you could do. The first thing is catechesis. You have to know the faith. In order to spot forgeries, you first have to know the authentic bill. So that's helpful. That first know the faith, know it well. Um, second, of course, is apologetics. Be aware of the arguments that people will throw out, and especially for kids. Teenagers love apologetics. They love being challenged. And they, they have, you can use the rebelliousness of teenage years to kind of go back and forth with them. What, why do you know God exists? Well, how do you know that the, the Pope is uh, the successor of Peter? And th- third evangelism, you know, the, uh, catechesis and apologetics without evangelism is just merely words. You have to introduce them to Christ, and, and they have to witness the, the transforming power, saving life of Christ. That's, that, that's where you start, at the core, to know the authentic faith, to live the authentic faith. Um, another thing, too, is we need to understand critical thinking skills, build critical thinking skills. Because like, like Scripture said, you know, they have the form of knowledge, but they deny its power. And, and there's something seductive about that. They show up and they pull people out. And if you're just used to passively receiving information, what will happen is you could passively receive information that's not correct. you got to be actively engaged. Yeah, and I'd like to uh, comment on that a little bit because there, and this might make somebody mad, but uh, uh, I do believe that one of the things that's undercut catechesis over the last 50, 60 years has been this move towards those that wanted to make everything age-appropriate mm-hmm. education. And and the problem with that was they began asking the question, well, these little kids can't understand this, so it's don't give it to them. We'll give them macrame or whatever it is. So pretty soon they're not teaching faith to children anymore. They're teaching them dumbed-down stuff, and we think that works. But the problem is that I have seen in my experience that the seeds that are planted grow later. Mm, yes. You trust. And you so that, as you said, you, you they have to teach learning skills over time. We understand that. Right. But don't think that you're just going to wait till they're teenagers to understand transubstantiation, to teach them transubstantiation. Right. Yeah. They have to have content. You know, I always use the analogy of who in the world would send their children into the business world with just an eighth grade education? But, you know, as Catholics, uh, many of our uh, religious education ends in eighth grade with confirmation, and we yeah. send them out into the world expecting, well, they'll be fine, you know. But, like I said, there's wolves out there that will appear to be sheep. They'll have that, that form of religion, but underneath it deny its power. And the worst part, and I'm sure, Marcus, you've run into this, is the what I call altar boy infallibility. I know the Catholic faith. Oh, I was an altar boy, you know. Yeah. I went to Catholic school, and they taught such and such. And you have to tell them, I'm sorry, but your teacher either watered it down or you didn't understand, or maybe they taught you something that's wrong. Well, and that I've heard that argument, yeah. And yeah. The, I know the Catholic Church. You know, I was there. I was brought up Catholic Church. And, and uh, don't go, you tell me what the Catholic Church teaches. And, and, and that backfires because... I was a pastor of a Presbyterian church. There was a lot of Presbyterians that didn't know their faith very well. A lot of sure. Lutherans that didn't know Absolutely. their faith. And I was brought up as Lutheran as a child. A lot of Episcopalians, Methodists, Baptists can come through the church day by day and go to church and not know the faith. Yeah. That's not just a Catholic problem. That's no, a problem everywhere, everywhere sure. because it is a spiritual battle. Yeah. That's why, if to take it maybe in back, closing thoughts back to that Ephesians passage, that we began with, Gary, is that if the goal is this unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, so we might go into mature manhood to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we're not tossed around like children, that Paul says what God gave us is a church. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's the context here is that he right. gave us a church to make sure that what we're receiving and believing is nurtured in one united body. Right. And not all this fragmentation. Right. Yeah, he didn't pick 12 scholars. You know, he picked 12 fishermen <laughs> and made them pastors, you know, shepherds. And it, it says his gift wasn't a book. His gift was apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers right. to equip the saint in the context of Ephesians, the context of the entire Bible, the context of the early church. In the tradition, we recognize that Jesus established a church to, to form the environment and the teaching body so that those in the body find their place. Right. You, you know, their skill and, and their ability to serve faithfully by grace as based on what was said earlier in chapter 4. Mm-hmm. Not, it doesn't say there are many bodies and many spirits with lots of different hopes and many lords and many faiths and many baptisms. No, they're all have one, the word one in front of each of those, recognizing that there was a unity that was to be there from the beginning. But let me ask you, does prayer have anything to do with keeping our kids together? Oh, yes, absolutely. Boy, prayer and the sacraments, uh, if you don't have that, you don't have hope. I mean, I, I know cases where, uh, if anything, it's good. It, certainly the sacraments, there's, their souls are conformed to Christ, and that will never change. They'll always have that hunger. They'll always have that desire for the fullness of Christ. So even if they they do leave the church, you can have that as an assurance as a parent that uh, prayer and sacraments will bear good fruit even when disaster strikes. And, of course, it also gives us confidence as well, too, that what the good work that God has begun in them, he'll be able to complete, even if they might be temporarily you know, outside the fold. Well, you were a lifelong Catholic, Gary, and I, I'm not. You know, I didn't become right. Catholic till 40, and I really believe that as the early church confirms the fact that from the earliest days of the church, they recognized that Jesus taught that the Eucharist was fully his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Whether your senses recognize it, it's true, that I think that's a blessing for lifelong Catholics. Yeah. That from the time they're little children, they've They've experienced the reality of the Eucharist. Converts, it may take the rest of our lives to fully appreciate it, but that's one thing that Catholics can pass on to their children. You know, the the fullness of it from the very beginning. Gary, thanks for joining us again. Oh, thank you. It's good to have you back. And all of you, thank you for joining us for this episode of Deep in Scripture. Uh, Our discussion today was about keeping our kids faithfully in the fold. You might look for Gary's book. You'll find it on our website deepinscripture.com. I'm sure you go to our resource catalog or EWTN resource catalog. Again, the best way we can keep our kids Catholic is for us to remain faithful as a witness. God bless you. See you next week.